upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, and welcome back to the Defunct Land Podcast. My name is Kevin Perger. Today, I am joined by a very, very special guest, former Imagineer and still current themed entertainment designer, Bob Berenick. Uh, Mr. Berenick, thank you for coming on. Hi, Kevin. It's sure nice to be with you. I'm looking through your portfolio, and you've worked on every attraction that I could possibly name in the era that you were at Disney, and then you went on to work at major attractions at these other parks. Just to start off, what are some of the amusement park chains or the themed entertainment companies that you've worked for? Uh, it seems like I've spent different area, eras, you know, different decades. Uh, I originally started with Gary Goddard way back when he was Gary Goddard Productions, and he was doing... Uh, the power plant in Baltimore. But we did things for Six Flags Georgia. Uh, we did Bush Gardens Williamsburg, Bush Gardens Tampa, Hershey, Chocolate World, all kinds of fun things. And I read there was also something with Paramount Parks. I did, yeah. Um, there was a group that was developing oh, several concepts for Korea and China, and we did park master plans and stuff for multiple versions of those. But then their licensing group jumped off and did some stuff locally uh, in the States. One of them was the Tomb Raider ride, which I, I think is one of your articles. I've read something recently about Paramount doing, finally uh, bringing something to life in the United Kingdom. Um, there's been so many for Korea, China, Indonesia. We just opened a couple of parks for Transworld through Legacy Entertainment, which is the offshoot of Gary Goddard's company. And those are, those are kind of brown, groundbreaking attractions that uh, the, the team there at Legacy is very proud of, one in Bali and one in Sibuber, uh, Jakarta. Yeah, they are okay. multi-level indoor parks. That, uh, we did master plans for the park, but I think the thing that's probably the most groundbreaking are the, the – uh, two uh, trackless dark ride attractions. There's one in each that uh, specific rim is in one and, and uh, an offshoot of it's called Road Rage for Bali, which uh, will seem familiar to moviegoers. It'll be interesting to see what we have time to talk about, because, of course, I want to talk about everything, but there's almost too much for a single episode. So just to get started with the uh, your personal narrative, we'll just go to the classic question. What did you do before you uh, entered theme park design and then how did you eventually get into it? Well, I, I was kind of dedicated to it at, at an early age. Uh, I was born in 55, the same year that Disneyland opened. So it felt like a destiny to me, but I, I really did a lot of education. I was raised in California, and uh, my goal was to become an Imagineer, which is really hard to do. It was even harder back then. And I just talked to enough people and got enough you know, counseling and, 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 and some good direction from folks. I spent my younger years at a little park called Frontier Village, which is in San Jose, and it was inspired by Walt's Frontierland at Disneyland. And um, 
it just seemed like years and years and years of trying to, you know, through, go through school, build models, learn all the tricks in the trade. It was really the um, making of the Pirates of the Caribbean book that inspired me. Because I love the pictures of all the art and all the models, you know, Mark Davis and Claude Coates and all those guys when they were designing pirates. And I thought, well, that's the job. So I just figured out what it would take and eventually got there. And uh, my, my very first job was Frontier Village in San Jose. And then I spent a few years doing architectural models in the area. And finally, um, it, was, it was a fun, I think it was maybe 1980 or something. And I just did this blitz of Los Angeles and had something like 35 interviews in seven days. It was incredible. But I was able to get my foot in the door at, at Disney. They were WED then, WED Enterprises, and they weren't hiring. But Gary, in 1984, Gary Goddard was hiring because he had three jobs. He had uh, power plant in Baltimore. He had the Savannah Exposition in Georgia, and he had a, a neat little steamboat attraction in St. Louis called the SS Admiral. And so Gary was really gearing up and he was, he was very much, I was impressed. It felt like wed it felt like his process and, and the um, energy of his company was very much like Disney. So I spent a few years there first. Then I went to, to it was still wed before they became Imagineering. Power plants in Baltimore is one of the most interesting and worst documented of the defunct theme parks that I've come across. It's such a weird concept, but there's not that much out there on it. Um, and I should have asked, what is your specialty? Kind of became the quintessential dimensional designer. I, I honestly think that Fred Jerger at Wed Enterprises was the original. He was a model builder who was a designer and he would, he would create environments. Now, most of the art directors at Disney were illustrators, you know, like, um, trying to think of some, you know, Herbie Ryman and, and the rest of them that would do beautiful paintings. Fred would do models of concepts. And so I kind of had that pattern. And I ended up becoming an art director through the industry because you could, as a, as a model builder, as a model designer, you would take the idea, make it dimensional and go to the field with it. And so it was an easy transla translation from the models to the full-size art form in the parks. It's, it's kind of a typical thing for a lot of people in the model shop would end up being production designers in the field. Well, that was, that was my specialty. I was a layout guy. So I did, and, okay. and I still am. They, they will hire me for track layouts or master planning parks. And because uh, one of the things that I really feel comfortable doing is visualizing things in 3d when I'm drawing a plan um, I can think of it in multiple layers. And it was one of the philosophies that I learned from Disney was that you want things to be multiple layered. You want one attraction to show against another attraction and get all the kinetics. And again, that was something Fred Jerger was very, very good at. And one of the best ones they did originally was the 1959 Tomorrowland with the monorail and the submarine and the Matterhorn. And they all kind of worked together. And that's that was inspiring me. I'm usually one of the first guys they call because I'll figure out the layout of the whole thing. And then we'll start with the model and they'll, then they'll bring renderings in to try to, you know, sell the idea, make it a little more exciting. Beautiful drawings. Before we move uh, on in your career, can we talk a little bit about Six Flags Power Plant? It was an art director's dream. Um, you know, 
Gary also hired Ed Sato, who uh, ended up going to Disney the same month that I did. Uh, he was the producer for Main Street, Disneyland Paris. And I was the model builder on Frontierland for Disneyland Paris. But Ed and I got to work on the power plant in Baltimore. And, and Ed was very proficient at the Jules Verne, you know, steampunk thing. And we loved it. As, as designers, that was just a, a dream. What was a little frustrating about the project, and it certainly was frustrating to Gary, was that Six Flags was adamant that they weren't not going to put in any rides. It was only shows and games and food. And we were afraid of the reality that it wasn't going to succeed. And it only lasted about a year and a half. We had a very high level of detail for our design. And we were really focusing on stories. I mean, Gary and the team had created a character, Phineas Flagg, who was this uh, Victorian inventor. And so all the attractions, even though they were walkthroughs and shows, were all based on the character. It had a continuity that worked really well. It just wasn't appealing to the public because it didn't have the roller coasters and things that they expected from the Six Flags part. Though most of the images are probably the models that we worked on. Um, there are very few real images from the, from the project because it was only open a year and a half. Right. And we were satisfied with, you know, the again, the art direction. It was It was stunning, but it just didn't have the draw. But I'll tell you what, it felt like we were working on a Disney project because of the quality of it. We were all very proud of it, very excited to do it. How long did you stay with Gary Goddard's production company? Originally, probably a couple of years. There was also the Savannah, Georgia uh, project, which was it was officially called the Great Savannah Expedition. And it was uh, the history of Oglethorpe and building of the city. It had a a piece that was reminiscent of American adventure. And it had a, a fun show that I was responsible for, which was a, the siege of Savannah, which was the battle. And it was done in miniature form, very much like the ballroom in the haunted mansion. So it was ghost images mm. that would come up on a big model battlefield. And then it had museum pieces and food and merch and all that. And uh, it was done in a historical building. Uh, I don't know how long the attraction stayed open. The building is still there. It was a, a, a local cultural thing. So what did you do after Gary Goddard Productions? Well, that's when Disney was gearing up uh, for Disneyland Paris, or so we thought. There was, uh, you know, they had Michael Eisner and Frank Wells had come into the company at that time. And negotiations for Paris were slower than everybody expected. Eddie and I had been hired, I guess it was April of 85 or 86. I can't remember what year it was. And uh, they weren't quite ready to start the project. So he and I actually were working on the George Lucas Tomorrowland Spaceport for Disneyland. Yes, this is one of the things that I'm most interested in. I didn't know when it would come up, but can we talk about as much as you remember from the project? And It's called Lucas Spaceport. There was already a contract. George had, you know, they'd already agreed and decided on star tours. And there had been some previous history on that because George had wanted a bigger piece of Tomorrowland, um, which I really don't have a lot of detail on, but I understand it was to replace the Carousel Theater in the Utopia area. And I, under, I think it was an interlocking roller coaster and some more. 
But anyway, uh, that Disney didn't want to do that. George, you know, they, they kind of pushed the simulator ride on George. And he agreed if he could have the attraction at the front of the part, front of the land, which is where uh, Star Tours is now. But at the same time, uh, several of us were working on wooing George back into doing a whole new land. So it was called Lucas Spaceport. And the central attraction was going to be the alien spaceship that landed in Tomorrowland, Tomorrowland being a spaceport. That's that model you've probably seen that I did. And Eddie Sato did the the uh, concept for the show and what the building was going to look like. And that was going to develop out into more of the land. Uh, Tim Delaney worked on some things for all of that back then. This was all while we were all waiting for the green light on Disneyland Paris. And I've had also Tim Delaney on the podcast. So we have Discoveryland and you did Frontierland. For, we're going to have the entire Disneyland Paris crew someday. Um, but on Lucas Spaceport, is this the same idea as... The Plectu's Intergalactic Review, which was supposed to be the new carousel show where a band, a space band crashed into the carousel theater and then started performing there. Is, this, is, that, is that the same project? It is. And that so, was following the Lucas Spaceport. That was an idea that was going to include Michael Jackson. So all that was followed by what is probably more familiar as the Tomorrowland 2055 concept. Then that led to what they actually did in 1997. So Lucas Spaceport and Plectu's Intergalactic Review were around the same time, but they were they were different concepts. Right. The hope was that it, that the main attraction inside the Carousel Theater, we, we really didn't flesh it out very well, but it was supposed to be a hope and promise of the future. It was a positive show because right next to it was the um, original Alien Encounter concept, which was going to take over the rocket to mars flight to mars and so they were the good and the bad if you will the 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 bright kingdom and the dark kingdom they were they were contrast attractions and uh the uh, and you know quite a bit i know about alien encounter because you've covered that one so that really was what prompted developing the carousel theater the interesting thing about it was that Everybody was afraid to demo the building because back then it was going to be a million dollars to tear the building out. And it's like, well, can't we just use it? So we tried all kinds of things. And I, I, I'm guessing that the future of Tomorrowland, whatever it may be, will actually involve demoing that building next time. I, I think that was a crutch that the, it just hamstrung the teams. We, right. some, some ideas were good. Some ideas weren't so good. We got to work with George Carter because I was in charge of the Indiana Jones project for about three or four years. And so I worked closely with George on that. But I had met him during this episode with the uh, Lucas Spaceport concept. And, and the idea was that, you know, they had signed contracts and, and agreed to build Star Tours, but it was pretty minimal. It was just one attraction. And they really had hoped at least the folk at Imagineering had hoped that George would be the creative head of Tomorrowland and he would just, you know, restore Tomorrowland to something that was very, very beautiful, very big, very popular. Well, it didn't get there, but that was our effort to woo him into it. So you're creating the model of what the Carousel Theater would look like as Lucas Spaceport. And do you remember what the show inside of it 
uh, any of the specifics of what that was going to be? And I, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer because we, we really didn't flesh out any of the shows. Um, okay, then I have a follow-up question, which is how do you design the exterior for a show building when you don't know what the show is going to be inside? It's kind of backwards, as, as and I think that's probably what you're alluding to. Is generally, we start with a show. And, and we build a box around it. Pirates of the Caribbean is a perfect example. But um, in Tomorrowland, we had buildings that already existed. And, of course, we knew Space Mountain was going to stay. And there was going to be a lagoon, we hoped. So we were really kind of restricted in how much development we could do. So we were looking at, at architectural styles. And ultimately, that's what led to the Tomorrowland 2055 idea, which was basically a, a skinning a new skin of, of the land. I mean, all, all these gen different generations of Tomorrowland concepts involved all the existing buildings. And I'm just hoping for the next one, which perhaps is coming in the next year or two, that they'll break away from that. They'll not limit themselves to what the size of the building is. So moving on to Indiana Jones, that was, but that would have been after Disneyland Paris or Euro Disneyland. Yes. What's, what's interesting about Indy was that I was doing Phantom Manor uh, for Paris, and they were just opening Star Tours. And George had a contract with Disney to use both Star Tours and Indiana Jones. They had to use, Imagineering had to use Indiana Jones by a certain year. And I want to say it was 96 or 98. I'm not really sure. And if they couldn't do something by that time, they were going to lose the rights. So what I was doing was, well, during the day, essentially, I was working on Phantom Manor. And at night, I'd pull out my concepts for Indiana Jones that I actually started in my garage. And that you may have seen the stuff on Indiana Jones and the Lost Expedition, which was people called it a whole new adventure land. It had multiple rides in it had the mine car and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, we, we put all that together into a big concept and George was very supportive of it. And finally, after about six years, um, strategic planning at, at, at uh, Disney corporation was willing to fund the development of it. So that's what really got it going. Well, and then like all projects, you know, it, it gets, through design for a few years and then the budget starts to push back on it a little bit. And that's what you know is the Indiana Jones adventure today. One of the things that interests me the most is the blue sky phase and all of these concepts that are being thrown around. And Indiana Jones, that experience, of course, had multiple uh, blue sky concepts. You know, the one that you were just mentioning, you know, the mine train coaster is the one people talk about a lot. Um, what were some of these other uh, bigger ideas that were being thrown around at the inception of that ride? We had a lot of good ones. Um, well, for starters, the, the mine car was George Lucas's favorite. Uh, you know, again, they had been developed, Disney had been developing the motion based uh, Jeep truck ride, that, which was, you know, essentially the Star Tours vehicle on wheels. George really wanted the Orc car. So we figured out a way to put those together, but uh, the problem was the capacity was not equal. The, the ore car was like a third of what the Jeep truck ride is. So we had developed what I thought was one of the better concepts was this uh, escape 
attraction, which is a sequential thing. And it is very, very similar to Rise of the Resistance. And I'm very, very happy to see that because what happened was that you took one ride system and got stuck in the temple. And then everybody had to find their way through this labyrinth of temple ruins. And several of them were able to escape the temple, but some folks were trapped and they were forced to escape via the minecar ride. And so among other things, what it did is it inspired people to ride the attraction more than once. Because if you wanted to get on that minecar ride, you had to go back through it and try to find a different route. And I'm, I'm very happy to see Rise of the Resistance. I, I, I feel like it's the successful sequential attraction that we were trying to do back on Indiana Jones. All good ideas are like that. It's it, all the way back in time, as far back as you can remember. Things are, they're never thrown away. Good ideas never die. And that's what's so inspiring about this industry. First time I ever experienced something like that was, funnily enough, it was the uh, Luxor Hotel in Vegas. And it was a Doug Trumbull attraction where, mm -hmm. I, honestly, I don't. Even, it had a boat ride and it had a theater and it had a third element to it. And it seemed like it went on for well over 30 minutes. But it was kind of inspiring because it, it, it led us to, you know, normally you're, you're standing in line for two hours and you get a four minute ride. And we thought, well, is there just a better way to do this where one thing led to another led to another? And and again, in Indiana Jones, the wonderful thing was the getting lost in the temple. You, you, it felt like a, a genuine escape. I mean, you had to find a way out. And uh, what we got out of it was a beautiful cue because there's just a long way from the treehouse to the ride load for Indiana Jones that the queue is as much a part of the show as the ride. I've heard from so many people that they enjoy letting people pass them in the queue so that they can experience mm -hmm. some of that stuff. And it's like, well, boy, there's the goal achieved. One of the biggest challenges was uh, uh, Disney Studios in Florida had just successfully opened the stunt show the Indiana Jones stunt show it was a great show, but Michael came to our team and said, why don't we just do that? <laughs> and we were like, we want the ride, Michael. And it's like, okay. So I took a piece of Plex and I, that was the size of, you know, it's a massive facility in, in Orlando. And we put it all around the property of Disneyland. And the only place it fit was in Frontierland, behind the berm where star Wars is right now. And, Michael was excited about it, and George got excited about it because he was developing the Young Indiana Jones series, the Chronicles. So we had developed a whole show, and we worked on that for a good year. Where it, and it, I have to say it wasn't a bad show. It was just, in my humble opinion, the wrong use of the property. But it would have been a great show with the kid, Indiana Jones as a Boy Scout, and all of his adventures. So um, that lasted for about a year, and it, the price ended up getting a little more expensive than even Michael was afraid it was going to be. And finally, he came to us and said, okay, let's just do the ride, And wow. uh, which was great news. That's, that's the news we wanted after four or five years of you know, developing this thing. We had a smaller budget than we wanted to have, and so we took our big ideas and tried to knock them down and uh, it did our darndest to keep the ore car ride, but because of operations that had to go. Uh, 
And uh, eventually the number got down to, I think, $90 million, $95 million, something like that. And the project got greenlit. And then I went on to work on some other things. Let's talk a little bit about Disneyland Paris, because you worked on the Frontierland. You did the model work. These models are beautiful and they're pretty iconic the models themselves you got big thunder mountain in the center of the the lake i mean it's and this is widely regarded as the best frontier land uh, what was it like to work on this project i think that everybody involved realized when we were doing it that it was going to be very popular in france um they were very fond of the wild west they loved red rocks they loved marlboro man they loved bonanza so it was kind of a slam dunk we you know that project went for five years in development as well. And it um, at one time was not going to have the haunted mansion. It was, uh, it was kind of on the chopping block as, as was pirates, believe it or not. But both of those ended up being an opening day, which we were very happy about. And then the thing we got to do with Phantom Manor was, was give it a Western theme. Uh, the, the angst that we all had was, you know, Walt's deal about not having the house look run down and haunted. But it really fit the theme of Thunder Mesa. And so we we just kind of, you know, sucked it up and we did it the way we thought it should be. And it seems to have been a hit. Jeff Burke was the producer of the land. So he was the overall boss. And we were all very in sync with Jeff. He had three or four artists. And uh, I was his model guy, and he had uh, Ahmad Jafari, who was his architect for the land. He, Ahmad's the one that originally created the look of Phantom Manor. Um, everything just seemed to fit really like a glove. There was, there was not a lot of tough decisions. I mean, it was, it was you know, absolute that, that Big Thunder would be on an island. That was the, the weenie. That was the icon of the land. So everything worked really well, and it, it came together. What was really neat was that during the development of all of that, Jeff and Eddie Sato and some of the other guys were able to go to London and see the opening of um, Phantom of the Opera, the, the, the big opening. And everybody was so inspired by that 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 had a lot of influence over our, our Haunted Mansion concept. That's how it became Phantom Manor and the storyline that's in it. Europe was very big with the rusty, dusty thing. They, they weren't the shiny enamel like Disneyland originally was. So it, it seemed to be okay. Um, we, we did have a little bit of angst about it because you know I, I felt like Walt was in the back of my head talking while we were doing that. But it, it, we, we did our best and we tried to make it work and I'm, I'm very proud of it. Jeff's very proud of it. As a matter of fact, there was one Halloween where we were um, having fun dressing up in costume. So Jeff Burke came in dressed as the Phantom from the opera, and it absolutely blew everybody away. It was just <laughs> perfect. So he was really playing the role. He was he was very much into the storyline of the Phantom and the Bride. And, and my kind of passion for that attraction was bringing back some of Mark Davis's Thunder Mesa from Western River Expedition. And so we were able to put some of that feel into the finale because we knew we were going to make the finale different. And this could be about any project, but when you're dealing with these attractions or lands or parks that have a huge emotional impact on the audience or the creators of these concepts, how do you navigate that? Does that inform what you're doing or do you try to separate it? 
you go with your instincts. And I was very fortunate because um, I was fond of the the heritage of the company. It was very special to me. Now, I, I love the renaissance of of uh, Eisner and Wells. They they brought so much energy and and drive into the company, but they weren't familiar with the heritage as, as much as some of us were. And I kind of felt like that was one of my missions was to maintain that. And I, it was fun doing that, um, you know, because I, I was always in awe of these guys, Walt and all of his original designers. I was so lucky to get to work with Rolly Crump. Um, that was the job that I went to after Indiana Jones. As Rolly was brought back into the company for maybe the third or fourth time, and he was going to restore Epcot back in 1993, I think it was. And uh, I got to work with Rolly. I was his field guy. They they had to redo most of the Future World pavilions because they were losing their sponsors. You know, they were 10-year contracts. And so Nestle's took over for Kraft at the Land Pavilion. And that was one of our big ones. Uh, Innoventions was another one. Rolly had two or three other things he wanted to do. He had something called Kid Cot, which was really fun. Uh, he also we were able to to build the little model railroad set that's next to Germany. That was going to be a little uh, German beer garden area originally. It was going to have a couple of rides in it, and kind of a storybook land thing. Um, and it it you know because of budget, like it always is, it kind of got cut down to the the little garden railroad that it is. That was that was a rolly thing. Uh, there were all kinds of stuff like that. I've just been so lucky because when I got into, before it was Imagineering, they were all still there. Sam McKim and Herbie Ryman. Herbie did the very first drawing for Indiana Jones, which was the um, bamboo pole that holds up the ceiling. And that was the first first concept for Indy. He also ended up doing a beautiful exterior piece that has the sunset. And that piece of art I understand disappeared from the library and I don't I don't know where it is I, I don't know if it's in the Herbie Ryman collection or what but all these guys were still there John Hanch oh my gosh it was just and, and a lot, even the architects and some of the engineers it was such a privilege it, it wasn't just taking direction it was it was they would explain philosophies and they and and I learned so much from them what I just it's such a privilege Mm -hmm. And I think my first mentor was actually uh, one of the one of the better ones for me. He was, his name was Laurie Hollings. He had worked with Walt and Bruce Bushman on the original Fantasyland back in 1953. Laurie Hollings was the designer of Frontier Village, and so I was running the train ride. I was in operations, and I really wanted to be a theme park designer, and he was the designer of Frontier Village. So I, I built a little model of a train station. One day I took it upstairs to show it was a train station that, Roli, that Lori had designed. And he was very impressed by it and he hired me. And so I, I moved from operations to Lori's office where I did a lot of designs and stuff. And he was, he was very humble and he was very, he was a good teacher. And the best piece of advice he ever told me was to, to go to school and, and stay with it. Learn as much as you possibly can. And he was my very first boss in the, in the theme business. And that's why it's nice to see. I, I don't get upset when things are torn out and replaced with something because nine times out of ten, it's replaced with something better, something something that's more innovative. And 
I was like I, I think I mentioned to you I was laughing with my wife the other night because I have worked on three or four properties twice in my career, which is very unusual. I mean, uh, the the Williamsburg, Virginia um, Enchanted Lab was one of our favorite shows we ever did, and then we had to replace it with the Ireland concept, Castle O'Sullivan. And the same thing happened up at uh, Hershey's Chocolate World. The same thing happened with Monster Plantation. And I honestly think Monster Mansion is even better than Monster Plantation was. It has more effects and it's it's got it's just got a better quality to it, better animation, better lighting. What is it like to to replace an attraction? Well, I've I've never been very upset about it because it is a a living breathing thing. It's 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 not like a movie. Once you make a movie, it's in the can. Um it's nice to be able to go back and plus it. And it's even funnier when you're the one doing it. I, I found it humorous to like rip my stuff out because what I could do is I could salvage, you know, I could, if there were props or costumes or you name it, we would, we would save a lot of that and, and prep it for the, for the, what we were building the next time. Uh, a lot, for instance, a lot of the props and things that were in Enchanted Lab at Williamsburg were reused in Castle Sullivan. And that's because I was actually the one that got to do it. Having been a part of both attractions, you know what has the value and what has the sentimentality. And, you know, it, it makes it that much more. I mean, even Tarzan's Treehouse was like that for me because I was able to save a lot of pieces from Swiss Family Robinson, from the Swiss Family Treehouse and, and use it in Tarzan. We even had a little scavenger hunt going when we opened that one about how many things you can find from the Swiss Family Treehouse. I would imagine there's stuff that people haven't seen yet. I mean, there's I, I saved a piece of the original leaves. Staying on Disneyland, I'm looking at your portfolio, and there's something that doesn't make sense to me. So you you worked on Liberty Street, which is this supposed to be an annex of Main Street that was originally planned you know, as early as the 50s and 60s in Disneyland. But in your model for this, Space Mountain is in the background. So when was this planned? Was this a revival of that original concept? Exactly. It, and we did a beautiful little video that showed how Walt had originally wanted to bring Liberty Street to Disneyland. And then, and, you know, they built it in Florida instead. But that was around the time, as you're familiar with, that the Muppets were going to invade Disneyland. The reason that we came up with that idea was because Lincoln was coming out of the theater and it was going to be Muppet 3D, Muppet Vision 3D. And so we thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we took the other end of Main Street and created a tiny little Liberty Square area and did a version, a smaller version, a scaled down version of American Adventure that featured Abraham Lincoln because he was going to be removed from town squares. It's it's where the uh, first aid area is between Plaza Inn and the baby station. It was going to tie into the other end of Main Street and would have given their parade bypass that they wanted so badly. That's one of my favorite things about the Magic Kingdom style parks. It's because it's 100% for show and 0% for operation that everybody enters in this one direction and they have to exit in that same direction. And it just causes this huge 
traffic flow, but of course, you know, for the show of, you know, walking down Main Street and exiting in the same direction, it, it does work. We had a nice solution to that in Paris. If you, uh, I don't know if you've been to that park, but both sides of Main Street have covered arcades. And, and the reason for that is because when Disneyland Paris was originally um, contracted, there was supposed to be X square footage of covered areas that were basically the equivalent to Tokyo Disneyland. So rather than covering Main Street, we decided we could cover the arcades on the back sides of Main Street and theme them. Eddie had a great time with that. And and yet another project that everybody talks about of the in the what if section of the parks is the Atlantean expedition that you did some work on. Yeah, I, uh, I that was that was going to be really something else. We had, you know, they were, they were wanting to rip out the sub ride because it was a maintenance nightmare. And several of us, including Marty wanted to save the subs. Well, Disney feature animation was coming out with Atlantis and, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we were hoping we could tie into that. We had basically taken the idea that was supposed to be part of alien encounter, which was the, high terror thing and put it on the sub ride. And we had some pretty good effects on there. We had a Leviathan, if you will, that was going to grab the sub with his claw and just crunch it like a beer can. And we were going to get sparks and water and all of that stuff worked. It was the rocking of the sub was done with giant air bubbles. And we had it all created. We did a mock-up inside of a tent that was out on the lagoon and there was one infamous Friday where I went out there and hung a banner on the um, tent that said Imagineering Exploration Base. And I don't think that banner lasted an hour. The, the management at Disneyland had that banner torn down right now. They were not in support of that concept. And it, uh, it didn't last very long. And then the fact that the film didn't do as well as they had hoped it would, that pretty much killed that idea. And this would have featured a, a large volcano, and there's this model of the, the monorail going through the volcano and all sorts of different things going on. Well, it was another one where because the Leviathan damaged the sub, we were forced to escape the sub inside of the volcano sea base and, and find our way out. It was, a, it was a big one. I did one for uh, Frontierland that was um, Geyser Mountain, and that was... Uh, when they came to me and asked for an idea that used half of the facility and half of the cost of Tower of Terror for Disneyland. But by the time we were done with the idea, they had elected to actually put Tower of Terror into California Adventure. So that that is an idea that went on the shelf. That was that was our replacement for Cascade Peak. It was across from Big Thunder. It was on the rivers of America. It had all the geysers along the river and you would have gotten into this elevator to go down into the to the mine and the geyser would have exploded under your car and lifted the elevator car to the top of the tower and then it quits and you fall. Drop down about 30 feet, but if, again, it was half the size of Tower of Terror. They, did, they wanted to spend half the money, so one of the ways to reduce the cost was this giant facility. You know, and, and in Tower of Terror in, in Orlando, it's terrific because of the the ride vehicle actually leaves one set of elevators and goes through the show and loads in another set of elevators. Um, we weren't going to do anything quite that elaborate, but this was just simple up and down. And it was much smaller, but it was themed to the Wild West. 
And I think I saw something years later where they had attempted to put that concept into Disneyland Paris. Although that looked like it was back to being full size, full size Tower of Terror. This is all just fantastic. And I, I'm, you, we have so much more of your career to cover. I might have to pull your arm to come on the podcast again someday. Um, but sticking with Disney, you also did work on Captain EO. The, the special effects guys installing the effects in the theater. What was nice is they, I think everybody was just kind of spread real thin at Imagineering then. And uh, they just grabbed me. I was working on the, the Lucas Spaceport stuff and Splash Mountain at the time. And they said, can you come down to Tomorrowland for a couple of nights and help us install this stuff? So it was real simple. I mean, that's, you know, that's how things are. It's, it's very reminiscent of the old WED where there was 14 or 15 people that had to help each other out. And you also worked on one of the Pirates revamps. That was the era that uh, what happened actually was that they were taking down World of Motion in Epcot. And I don't know whether most people know, but the characters that were in World of Motion were pirates. They were they were the same molds as Pirates of the Caribbean. So it was a natural fit to take, I think we had maybe a dozen characters that we could use. And so we figured out where we could put them through the ride. And, and I was actually able to create a finale at the end where you're going up the lift where two pirates were trying to unsuccessfully get treasure out. They were, they were too greedy and they were never going to make it. But, you know, there were other scenes all the way through. And, and one of them that I had a lot of fun doing was another Mark Davis thing where the, the pirate was rocking on the barrel, but the rum was coming out of the barrel, just like Mark had drawn. And that, it, that was never realized in the original Pirates, but we got to put that in. I have one more question. And again, thank you for all the time you've given me today. Um, this is the question I really like to ask Imagineers because it always gives a different answer. But what do you think is the most misunderstood? I, it could be by the public, by fans of your what you do. And it could be your specialty. It could be Imagineering in general. What do you think is a, is a misconception you want to clear up or a message you want to get across? I think... The number one message I would love to get across is that if somebody is truly passionate about following their dreams, they need to go to school, they need to learn, they need to get practical experience. It doesn't have to be at Disney. It could be anywhere. I mean, it's a big industry, but to, to get their hands on the art craft and to, to get some experience and become a commodity. And when you become known for being the best at something Everybody, Disney, Universal, all of them will be coming to you and they will be wanting you to work for them. Back when I was a kid, I felt like I had to chase them down. And I, I, it took me years to realize all I had to do was really just be good at it. And they would seek me out. And it's true for anybody. So it's, it's not a hopeless thing. It's, it's like if somebody like me really wants to be an Imagineer or really wants to be a designer for Universal or anybody else for that matter. There's many, many great companies out there. All they have to do is, is pursue it. Never give up on it. Well, I don't think there's a better way to end the podcast. Thank you so much for all of your knowledge and for giving me so much of your time and sharing your expertise and your experiences. It's, it's really special and I, uh, I really appreciate it. I had as much fun as you did, Kevin. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, and to everyone listening, thank you for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And thank you for visiting Defunct Land. 